0: Um, If you came here expecting to get all the answers on 10 through 12, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) Um, I'm going to wrap up a little bit with what I didn't finish last week, do a little review, and then I'm going to get into 10 through 12. Probably going to be more of an overview to try to help you see the big picture. I'm probably going to go into 11 more so than even 10 and 12, because 11 is really the meat of the matter. When we were talking uh daniel chapter 10 and 12 but 10 through 12 but we'll we'll take a look at that but i want to look at the um uh, finish up on the period of the biblical silence look at real quickly what we have talked about just to make sure we don't lose we don't lose where we were and where we've been and then we'll do 10 through 12. um remember the big picture of things the Medo persian empire is the empire that is going to allow the Jews to go home and they will remain in control some 100 years after the Old Testament ends, followed by the Grecian Empire, which really was the dominant force to the Jews in Jerusalem. Uh, one of the things we'll talk about later on tonight is uh, really the two main kingdoms that came out of that Grecian Empire, the two main arms, uh, both What what I've been referring to is Greek, Grecian Syria and Grecian Egypt. And that's one of the things that my takeaways from this whole whole quarter has been just, I guess my eyes have been enlightening, enlightening to the world history, because when I think Egypt and I think Syria, I don't think about Greece. I mean, that's way over in the Western Mediterranean. But this study that we went through helped me focus really on why we have that the way we do. And then we see where the Roman Empire came into existence and how they started annexing major, major areas and provinces. And finally, we get down to the New Testament times. main things I want to emphasize real quickly is just, you know, as a result of um, Medo-Persians taking over, Cyrus was the very first Persian Empire. And he said the Jews could go home. Uh, the Old Testament period will close under the fifth uh, king, Artaxerxes Longmanus, or whatever his name is. Um, and that Old Testament period closes, but the Persians stay in control another 100 years. Uh, coming on down to the final Persian king was Darius the Third, and uh, he would stay as that king until he was defeated by Alexander the Great. Who lived a ripe age of 32 years and 8 months before he passed away, but he became the king when he was 20 years old. And his, his uh, as we talked about in one of the kings, um, Darius, Darius the Great. Remember, they took off after the Greeks early on, and it caused a rivalry that never ever stopped. And actually, Alexander the Great is the one who stopped that and finally said enough's enough, and he defeated them. Um, but they will pursue the, pursue the Medo-Persians until they will defeat the Medo-Persians. And as the key point on that slide was not so much the, the uh, activities that Alexander participated in, but it's what his successors did who fought for control of his empire. And remember those, there was the great empire, then there was the four horns that were prophesied and uh, that would stand up and the four kingdoms that would come from that. And then of those, there were some main kings that ended up coming into existence. And those are three of the main winners that came out of the 301 peace treaty. Ptolemy, who was a southern king, he was called Egypt. Um, Seleucus Nicator, I don't know what his name is. Um, He was actually with Ptolemy for a while, but Ptolemy helped him actually develop and get the northern kingdom of Syria. And that's why... I didn't really talk about this last week. That's why they never fought over it. Uh, Judea went in the treaty, went to Seleucus, but Ptolemy says, no, nah, it's mine. <laughs> and since they were friends and allies, they basically said, okay, you get to keep it. I'm not going to fight about it. But after they died, it was that's where the fighting over the Jewish, Jewish Palestine uh, came into existence. Because remember, the empires that border the Jews Uh, the northern kingdom, Syria, the southern kingdom, Israel, they were the ones who were going to fight off and on, not off and on, it seems like all the time, to control the little sandwich meat (laughs) of Judea. So there's the bun to the north, the bun to the south, and then there's what's in Judea stuck in the middle there. All right? Um, So we have the stage set with two Grecian empires who would now influence the Jews. Those would be... Syria, and those would uh, be—the other one would be Egypt. It's interesting to note that once they took over after 301, remember, the Egyptian empire controlled Judea for almost 100 years. Um, And then after those two ended up passing away, that's where all the battles started happening, and Egypt continued to gain upper control until about 198 B.C., when finally there was a war that— Syria was able to win. And as a result of that war, from 198 on, Syria became the dominant force. Greek Syria became the... And don't forget that. It's the Greek culture of Syria that became the dominant force over uh, Judea. And we also mentioned in 280 B.C. when the Septuagint uh, was translated or the book called the, the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew old testament um and rome still is out there gathering force gathering speed Uh, as i mentioned in 201 they became the uncontested ruler of the mediterranean western mediterranean sea and now their eyes are stuck upon conquering the eastern portion and they will eventually do that but it will take time as we mentioned on the slide it took until 64 bc for them to actually conquer syria Um, In 190 B.C., the Romans actually fought for the first time with Antiochus of Syria, and they did the same thing. They defeated him in 191 and 190. So Syria is kind of crumbling. Rome is on the rise, but Syria is not crumbling to the point where they're still not totally in control of Judea. They still have Judea underneath their thumb, but they've got enemies that are popping up everywhere, Parthians to the east, and Rome's to the west. So in 186, there's the Peace Treaty, where Syria finally had to give everything. Basically, they had to give a lot of things up to Rome. And to remember, the biggest thing that they had to finally also give was 15,000 talents of an indemnity or military fine to Rome. And that was spread out over years. Um, there were certain amounts that had to be paid each year. And as a result of that, they took— Antiochus' son named Antiochus Epiphanes as hostage in Rome to make sure that the payment was going to be made. And eventually, they swapped him for another son, Demetrius, who was the true, true heir to the throne. But we know he never got to be that because Antiochus then became the ruler of Syria, and he's the one that has all the emphasis that we've talked about uh, he's looking for money because of this treaty that Rome said, you got to pay me the military fine of 15,000 talents of gold in installments, um, and you better make it good. So he's looking to get money anywhere and everywhere that he wants. In uh, 167 BC, we talked about where Epiphany sent uh, soldiers into Judea to take care of the uprising that was happening there. Uh, because Jason wanted to take over the high priest. And I mentioned, and I did not mention this, there was a quote that was said by a historian. He took Jerusalem by storm and ordered his troops to cut down without mercy anyone they met and to slaughter those who took refuge in their houses. And as a result of that, he murdered and butchered over in Jerusalem. Isn't that amazing? And they also sold a lot of the people from Jerusalem and made them slaves. So that's one thing that I wanted to talk about. A little bit later on, when he comes back later, he then institutes these political, in addition to those things, he instituted his desire to uh, unify all of Syria by having everybody serving the same gods that he served. And as a result, the temple rituals were suspended, so were the sacred scriptures were burned. Sabbath, the festival for days were forbidden, circumcision was forbidden, and then on top of everything, let me put an altar of Zeus on top of the altar of the burnt offering at your temple, because after all, Zeus, God, Jehovah God, they're all the same. We're going to worship him all the same. Let's just all be friends. That's literally what he wanted to happen, and that's what he did, but of course that offended the Jews. And uh, that in in of itself ended up to the Maccabean uh, Revolt um, that we talked about a little bit. That was very successful and by 165 BC, uh, the year that Antiochus died, they gained control of the temple and uh, and reinstituted the worship and they replaced the altar, burnt off, and cleansed the temple. And we talked about Hanukkah being celebrated from that point on on the 22nd of December about the lights burning in the temple. Um, Judea is finally granted independence from the Seleucids, the Syrians. Remember they are just getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And the Maccabees did such a great job forcing that, um, that, that effort that they just finally started giving up more and more. And it took a long time, but the 142 uh, B.C., they finally were given their independence. Meanwhile, Rome is still organizing and conquering and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So now they just recently... Uh, gained the province of Asia and called it Asia. And then we were coming right on down where, in Rome in 75 B.C., General Pompey was given authority to conquer all the eastern shores of the Mediterranean, including 50 miles inland, and that's exactly what he started doing. A um, couple of things I wanted to mention here, Syria was annexed in 64, Pompey, Julius Caesar and Crassus uh, all formed the triumph of, of Rome in 60. Uh, but. That proved not to be very, very useful because they started arguing with each other in 48 B.C. Uh, Pompey was defeated by—Caesar uh, defeated Pompey, who then fled to Egypt where he died. And while Caesar was chasing him there, that's, we also ran upon this, the historical character of Antipater, the Hadumian in, in Egypt who helped out Caesar. And as a result of that, Caesar then gave him— the responsibility uh, to be the procreator of, um, did I say that right? I didn't say that. The—he's uh, head guy in Judea, <laughs> all right, because he helped him out. Um, what else? I wanted to cover the things in yellow. Oh, yeah. I mentioned about, we mentioned about um, the procurator of Judea. I said that right. Caesar then confirmed Arcanus as the high priest. Antipater, placed his sons that we know very well, Herod, as the military prefect in Galilee, and Phasio, who is the prefect in Judea. Meanwhile in, meanwhile, in the bigger picture of the world, Rome, Julius Caesar was assassinated, and uh, Mark Antony and Octavian divided the Roman world between themselves with Antony being over the Judean portion. But that little love, love fest did not last long because they eventually became to battle, and Octavia defeated Mark Antony's fleet in 31 BC. And then in 27, roughly 27, sometimes some people say 31 BC, Octavian was declared Augustus Caesar. Um, Herod was actually named the king of the Jews, we mentioned up in around 40. And um, that's where I wanted to start summarizing some things. So, when we took a look at everything so far that has been, that happened during these 400 years of of uh, the time the, the last prophet spoke in the Old Testament and John the Baptist, there's a lot of changes that's come about in the world and in Judea in particular. When you open the pages of the New Testament, where you have a Roman Empire that's in place, which was prophesied, but it was not even on the books of the Old Testament, we find, except it was prophesied about, we find the Greek language universally spoken when it was not even known to the Jews of the Old Testament. Jesus and his apostles regularly quoted from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament called the Septuagint, and now, for the first time, many of the Gentiles in the world have access to the Old Testament scriptures through the Septuagint version, which is, they wouldn't read Hebrew, but they would read Greek because Greek was the business language of the world. Jews, speaking of the world, were living all over the world. Many of them were even speaking Greek as their native language and didn't even understand Hebrew anymore. And we talked about how that happened when somebody immigrates to the country and their kids, if they don't speak the language of the mom and dad, mom and dad may still speak it, but the kids pick up the language where they're living. And all of a sudden they forget everything that they learn. So in every city, we find that there, if there are enough Jews, there's a synagogue there where they're loyally reading the law. At the close of the Old Testament, people of that day were very, very negligent about keeping the law. But at the beginning of the New Testament, Jews were so strict about keeping their Sabbath day that they were ready to kill Jesus for healing somebody on the Sabbath day. So we have quite a bit of contrast going on. In the people of Nehemiah's day, if they didn't bring in their tithes regularly enough, they couldn't even support the Levites. Yet in New Testament days, some of the Jews were so strict in paying their tithes that they went out and they counted all the leaves on the herb plants just to make sure they gave one-tenth of everything. So there's this... Huge, colossal change in 400 years. In Jesus' day, there were various parties among the Jews, such as the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots, but they weren't even mentioned in the Old Testament. But they developed during this 400 years. There was always the battle of the Israelites versus the Edomites, who are now known as the Adumeans, who are now ruling over them, otherwise known as the Herods, which is also an irony. Herod ruling under them over the under the authority of the Roman emperor. Even the land of Judah is now known by its Gentile name or Greek name, Judea. That was a big change. And when the Old Testament control closed, the Jews barely controlled around 25 square miles of their city. When we opened the New Testament. It is a bustling environment of Galilee and all the other places under the Roman province. And with the reign of Augustus Caesar, there was a time of unprecedented peace and stability in the Mediterranean world. Rome controlled the entire Mediterranean Sea. And therefore, sea travel was faster, better, safer than ever before. And at the same time, their armies patrolled the roads. So guess what else was safe? Traveling by car, no, traveling by camel, walking, whatever they were doing. All of that points to the fact that the time is now right. The time has come for the fulfillment of God's promise, his greatest promise to all mankind. It's time for God to establish his eternal kingdom that he spoke of in Daniel by having the Savior, the Messiah come and dwell among men. And as Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And that's what that time period led up to. And that's the time period that God, remember, had prophesied that said in the fourth kingdom, I will establish an eternal kingdom that will never be defeated. So, I hope that big overview of um, of those 400 years helps, helps you understand the major world powers that came to be, what happened during that particular time, just as it was prophesied by Daniel in chapter two, verses 32 through 34. And I don't want us to forget that. Remember, Daniel was the head of gold. I mean, Daniel, Babylon was the head of gold. Persia was the chest and arms of silver. And Persia would influence the Jews over 200 years. The Greeks would then come, as we talked about. Alexander the Greek would defeat the Medo-Persians. The Greeks were represented by the belly and thighs of bronze. And then they influenced the Jews over 300 years. The first 100 years coming from the Greek Egyptians and the last 200 years coming from the Greek Syrians. And we've also talked about the brutality of Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the Seleucid king who ruled from 175 to 164, 163 B.C. And as I mentioned before, one of the most interesting things I learned was just exactly how the Greeks influenced so much of the world, and specifically Syria and Egypt. The Fourth World Empire, the Romans, were represented by the legs of iron, and we saw how Rome was slowly rising, conquering areas, conquering provinces throughout the years, and would eventually become the world power just before the New Testament period began. And I will add, just as God said it would and God planned it that way. And we noted a little while ago that Octavian, after defeating Mark Anthony, was named Augustus Caesar in 27 BC. So, then in the New Testament days, in the days of the Roman Empire, God set up his kingdom, his eternal kingdom, which has been standing now for some 2,000 plus years. And who's reigning as king of kings and lord of lords? Jesus Christ himself, the Messiah. So that was God's plan. And that's exactly what he said he was going to do through the through the prophecy of Daniel And that's exactly what he's done And now we're all beneficiaries Of that great plan um, So looking back over time We've now covered nine chapters uh, Chapter one Talks about God providentially Providing for Daniel And, his, and uh, his three friends As they faced their first test in Babylon Which was what? I will not be defiled by The king's food Alright Alright And remember, they were taken as captives as a young, young men, 14, 15, potentially years of age. But even with all of that, they came through it and they were like, um, well, well mature beyond their age, dedicated to God, not defiling themselves with the king's food. We learn from that that God can protect his people, not just in Jerusalem, but God can protect them 500 miles away in a captive city in Babylon. Chapter 2, God provided Daniel the ability to reveal and interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And as a result of that, he was promoted. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar said, I had a dream. Not the MLK dream, but I have a dream. But I'm not going to tell you what the dream was. You tell me what the dream was and the interpretation of it. And remember, his people couldn't. So he calls in Daniel. Daniel I remember they were all going to be killed daniel learned about the plan and god daniel goes to god god provides him the interpretation then he reaches out to nebuchadnezzar through his points of contact and as a result he's told what's going to happen he told about the uh four we just went over those the four images the metals. but he also specifically mentioned the fifth thing that god revealed he would set up a kingdom that would never be destroyed And that would be his purpose. And matter of fact, nothing would stop his purpose. As we study the Persian empires, remember, Persia tried to stop it. Rome will try to stop it, but they will never be successful. In chapter 3, God rescued Daniel's three friends who refused to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. Um, Remember, that was the nine-story image, uh, probably made from, and they were thrown into the fiery furnace, which was probably used to even build the image. So even though they uh, did allow—oh, God then, I should say, God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to destroy Jerusalem, but God is still in control of the affairs of men, and he teaches Nebuchadnezzar that lesson. And that's so interesting. I allowed you to do that. It was part of my plan. But don't you think you can outsmart me? He is not God. Chapter four, we talked about God providing Daniel the ability to interpret another dream of Nebuchadnezzar, who literally then praised God after God humbles him. Remember, God restored him, and then, remember, he goes out into the fields and acts like the beast of the fields, and then God restores him, and then Nebuchadnezzar, chapter four, what was interesting about chapter four is the chapter four is told from the viewpoint of Nebuchadnezzar let me tell you my story, and it's Nebuchadnezzar telling the story in Daniel chapter four, which was really unusual. But he wanted the world to know, but his posterity didn't know. His posterity didn't read the message, I'm sure. In chapter five, God again enables Daniel to interpret the writing on the wall. Remember when it was put in front of Belshazzar? That was done, it almost looked like it's the next day. Remember, we talked about timeline-wise, We fast-forwarded way on down line to the very end of of the the, um, Medo-Persians when Belshazzar is going to die that very evening in 539 B.C. And his kingdom will, I mean the Babylonians, and his kingdom of them will be given over to the Medo-Persians. Chapter 6, God rescued Daniel from the lion's den after the evil conspirators uh, conspired against him. And Darius came on the scene as Darius the Mede, now the first Medo-Persian. So God is teaching Darius about who he was. Then we had chapter seven where Daniel had the the dream of a vision uh, where he saw four great beasts arise, Daniel chapter eight. There was a second dream where he saw uh, the ram being defeated by the he-goat and he specifically told us who those were. And finally in chapter nine, we talked about Him praying for his people. Why? Because he realized that 70 years had elapsed. It's time for his people to go home. He starts praying about that to God, and God um, eventually listens to him and answers his prayer that we talked about in in verses 1 through 19. I don't think we ever really talk specifically at the end of 20 through 27, but he basically says, Daniel, Jerusalem will be rebuilt. But after a passage of time, it would be destroyed again, and it would be brought to its final end, never to occupy any special place in the eyes of God. So Daniel asks about it. He prays about it. He gets his answer, but then he got some more information that he didn't know was coming, that his Jews would eventually, and his Jerusalem would eventually be destroyed. Um, And that got into the seven weeks and the 62 weeks and then one more week, which basically were just periods of time that talked about undefined periods of time, which basically said, here's the events and when they're gonna happen. Most people thought that the seven symbolic weeks occupies the period of the decree of Cyrus to rebuild the temple and the actual accomplishment of that rebuilding followed by the 62 weeks between rebuilding the wall and the coming of the Messiah, where then Jesus, the Messiah, would be cut off, and as a result, the city would eventually be destroyed by the government in control that we have now learned to be Rome, okay? So, um, key takeaways that we've always emphasized, two major things, God rules in the affairs of men, both then and now, we're told a little bit of how he did that back then. We're not told anyway of how he does that now, but he just does that. But the main thing other also also, to emphasize that God faithfully and providentially provides for his people, no matter where they are, whether they're in Jerusalem or whether they're in Babylon or wherever the case may be, God is God. He's eternal, and he will provide for his people. Um. Oh, I'm sorry. I just went through that, didn't I? (laughs) Okay. Got ahead of myself. Chapters 10 through 12. Chapters 10 through 12 give a panoramic view of some of the unfortunate aspects of what's going to happen to Daniel's people once they return to Jerusalem. And if you take a look at the breakdown of chapter 10 through 12, chapter 10 verse 1 through 11 verse 1 is really the introduction uh, then we get into chapter 11 verse 2 through 12 verse 4 which really talks about the major points of the revelation that is given to Daniel and then the book concludes in verses 12 chapter 12 verses 5 through 13 we see a conclusion of the section that's being discussed in chapter 10. Through chapter, 12, through chapter 12, verse 4, and then the book itself is actually closed. The entire book is closed, and there's a reason uh, why all that take, takes place. But I think one of the key verses that I want you to go look at is Daniel chapter 12. After we look at all of this, because I think this is important for you to see, it's important for, and Daniel saw the same thing. I'm going to read it. Chapter 12, verse 8. Although I heard, I heard what? Although I heard everything that he just talked about in chapter 11, chapter 10, chapter 11, and chapter 12. Although I heard, I did not understand. And then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? What is he saying there? I still don't understand. Tell me What's going to happen? (laughs) And notice the answer that he gets. Verse 9. Daniel, go your way. Daniel, for the words are closed up and they are sealed till the time of the end. I want to know. I hear all of this. I see you tell me all of this. I don't understand. I want to know more. And the message to Daniel is, I've told you what I'm going to tell you. Seal out the book. It doesn't apply to you right now. But you need to preserve what I told you, and God will help. And then eventually, over time, it will become manifested. And then... As those people read it, hopefully they will have the spiritual insight to see the things that you recorded that they will then look and see, oh, okay, maybe this is what God was talking about. And those same lessons that you and I talked about that God rules in the affairs of men and that God will providentially provide for his people should be the main things that they are going to read and understand. As they start to see some of these things unfold, okay? Because this book was read, just like Jeremiah's book was read. This book was kept and was read by people. The Maccabees, in particular, it's noted that they read all of this. And they're thinking, "Is this apply to us?" So they're thinking it is. And I guess before I, I guess before we get into this. I want to kind of give you an analogy, first of all. Well, first of all, I'm going to say this. Um, Why is this so hard sometimes for us to see? Specifically chapter 11. Um, I think if I I were to ask you, if you read your hand, uh, raise your hand and said, I read chapter 11, and I know everything about it, historically what happened. I think we'd probably have a few that could do that. Most of you are like me the first time I read it, and I go, what in the world is this about? <laughs> okay? And the reason is, is these things are talked about in and prophesied about, things that would happen hundreds of years during the times of the biblical silence. But, let me see what else I have here. But... It's things that are not given in detail, okay? So as a result, it's not fulfilled yet. Daniel cannot see it being read anyplace, and it's just going to have to play out over time. There's no inspired historical record. Everything that we have to read about is from history, from uninspired people. Plus, in chapter 10, it gives us a glimpse of how God views things, some of the conflicts that, go, that both go on on this earth as well as in heaven. And when we start getting to the things that are being the conflicts of heaven, guess what? He didn't tell us anything about that except here's a little bit of a glimpse into it. And he doesn't explain it. We just have to go, oh, well, there's a whole new thing that I don't even see here. But in the spiritual celestial view of things, there is a war going on with God and the angels of Satan. Um, And this vision talks about a warfare that's going to take place both in heaven and on earth. Um, When we take a look at the conflict from heaven's side, chapters 11 and 12 will give a detailed account of some of the wars that involve Persia and Greece. And then the conflicts turn to the Seleucid Empire Conflicts of Syria and the Empire of Egypt, and finally between the Seleucid Empire and the Jewish people themselves. Specifically, when they talk about the Maccabees, this prophecy is so detailed that skeptics have led to say there's no way Daniel could have prophesied this 200 years before they happened between the Persians and the Greeks, and over 300 years before they happened between Syria and and, uh, and Egypt. They said, there's no way. Well, there is a way. It's because if God revealed it to Daniel and God knows the future, then God could say all these these things are going to happen. And it would also be something that when they read it would provide comfort to them. Plus, when we add to this difficulty of the period, we're talking about things that happened thousands of years ago. How many of you accurately know the history of the United States? I mean, we start talking about names, and I go, I don't know what that's about, let alone you start going back 2,000 years plus 2,500 years from 2,000 to 2,500 years, and they're talking about, please, we don't, even, I don't even know how to pronounce their names. You see me struggle with some of these names. There's some of you have studied all this, but it's just a tough period to understand. Um, But we should never lose focus that the primary lesson for us is that God knows the future and God is in control. And we should never lose sight of that. I like what uh, Bob Waldron said. God just doesn't wake up some morning to find some huge surprise lying on his doorstep going, oh no, what am I going to do with that? Even when men are not behaving as he would like for them to behave, and even when men are seeking to oppose everything God wants, God knows it, and he will take care of the matter as the situation merits in God's own time and in God's own ways. The other thing that I want to make sure we see is none of these specific prophecies has any direct being on thinking on any of the modern events. There's not a single verse that's talking about some treaty that's being signed by in the Middle East— In our world today or some other place in the world, Daniel is asked about his people, the Jews, what's going to happen to them. And God provides his question with information about what would happen to the Jews in the centuries immediately following Daniel. So they don't relate to us today except the one that said in the fourth kingdom, in the days of the fourth kingdom, I will set up my kingdom, which we are now part of. Okay? So I'm going to give you um, kind of an overview. I may even skip chapter 10. Because what I want to say is really in uh, chapter 11. Verse 14 of chapter 10 is important. That's when we find out why Daniel's praying. What's going to happen to his people, the Jews in the years ahead, and God is about to tell him. Okay? Chapter 11. I'm going to fly over to chapter 11. Oh, and some of the things that we talked about, we is the things that are going on in the spiritual realm. Um, when he talked about the prince of Persia was going to come and the prince of Greece, and uh, he says, I was going to come earlier, but I was delayed three weeks because Michael had to come and help me. All of this is fascinating. I have no clue what they meant. Okay? So maybe it's a discussion we can have. But before we start 11, I want to ask you this. Because chapter 11 talks about this, and I'm not going to be able to get through it all, but I'm going to give you some examples of how it's got to be looked at. Then I'm just going to let you, you're going to have to go look at some books and see history, how history correlates with the Bible. If someone in George Washington times said that in the centuries ahead, at the end of the years, a president would be taken down after two years while the world watched in silence, how do you think George Washington would have reacted to that. Do you think he would have known what they meant? No, he wouldn't have known. He was just being told about something. Maybe Daniel the prophet is there telling him, <laughs> and he trusts Daniel. Likewise, the person who told him probably didn't know either. Only time would reveal the facts. As a matter of fact, eight people have died in office: four by assassination, and four. By natural causes. What did we know about this? We know that he said it would be a president, but did he say a U.S. president? No. I just said a president. I didn't say U.S. president. I talked about a specific period of time, two years, and I said the world watched, but how? We don't know that. And he wouldn't have known that. But what if I said at the end of the years, a young president will be taken down after two years while the world watched? Well, does the word young help you? It does a little bit. What if I said a young Catholic president will be taken down after two years at the World Watch? Well, then you would know. But until those events played out, even George Washington wouldn't have known about that. If I'd have said a young Catholic president would have, was going to be taken down in two years, he'd have gone, well, a Catholic president? <laughs> Are you serious? But as time went along, what would people be looking for? Who's the first young Catholic president? As soon as John F. Kennedy was elected, they're going to go, uh-oh, what's coming? Something is getting ready to happen. I need to be on guard. That's what's being told here in chapter 11. That's my analogy of how you need to be looking at chapter 11, okay? So let me give you an example. Chapter 11, verse 2. I will tell you that I'm I'm using Bob's uh, paraphrasing. I'll tell you the truth. There will be three more kings in Persia. Then a fourth king will arise far richer than the others. And when he's grown strong through his riches, he shall take his forces to the land of Greece. Then a mighty king shall stand up. He shall rule over a wide, a, a, a wide kingdom, shall do as he wishes. And when he has stood up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided into four parts, but it will not be left for his posterity, but will be left to others. Now, if you were paying any attention last week to what we talked about, you already know what this is all about. This is all about Andrew Alexander the Great standing up and that it's the kingdom to be divided into four things. How do we know that, though? It's because the events happen and we can look back and see. But Daniel's like George Washington. He has no clue. He's wanting to know why. That's why I emphasized the points in chapter 12, verses 8 and 9. Tell me what this is all about. This is killing me. Well, I'm not going to tell you all the details. You just have to wait till time. But when we throw in history with it, the facts of the history say that there, remember Cyrus was the first king. He was followed by Cambyses, Darius I, and then there was Xerxes. Xerxes, we talked about, mounted a strong attack on Greece. His campaigns against Greece began a struggle that was continued off and on until it was ended by Alexander the Great from Greece. The mighty king of verse 3 is Alexander the Great. He was born in 356, just a little less than 200 years after this prophecy was made. He destroyed the Persian Empire but at the height of his conquest. He died in Babylon in 323 at the age of 32. He had an infant son that was killed, so it was not left to his posterity, but at his death, the empire fell apart and was divided among his generals. History fills in a lot of the blanks, and that's important for us to know. I'm gonna do one other real quick, because this one's kind of funny, but you're gonna to have to listen really carefully and really pay attention. In verse six, it has to do with verse six. At the end of the years, they shall make an alliance. The daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make a treaty, but she shall not retain her strength. Neither will he stand, but she shall be given up, and they that brought her, and he that begat her, And he that strengthened her in those times. And you're thinking, who in the world and what in the world is that? But when you fill in history and you look back at the historical record of what happened, here's how it would have read. And this is what we know. 35 years after the death of Seleucus, the first king of the north, his grandson Antiochus II made an agreement with Ptolemy Philadelphus, who was sealed by his marriage to Bernice, the daughter of Ptolemy. In order to marry Bernice, Antiochus had to divorce his wife, Leodice, or or what her name. The new marriage did not work out. Bernice did not retain the strength of her arm, and when Bernice's father died, Antiochus divorced her and took back Laodice. But Laodice, fearing that she could not depend on Antiochus, had him poisoned and encouraged her son to kill Bernice and her infant and anyone else who had any part in arranging her marriage to Antiochus. Now, let me put the words in verse 6. At the end of the years, they shall make an alliance. The daughter, Bernice, of the king of the south, Ptolemy, Philadelphus, shall come to the king of the north, Antiochus II, and make a treaty. But Bernice shall not retain her strength. Neither were Antiochus stand. But she, Bernice, will be given up. And they that brought Bernice... And they that begat Bernice and they that strengthen Bernice in her time will all be taken care of by killing them all. Don't, don't you wish Daniel thought, if I had just known all that, I could have gone, whew, now I know what he's talking about. But he didn't. And we wouldn't know that either unless we had history on our side to look back. Because during the years of silence, there's no inspired writer telling us what went on during this period of time. You have to look at history. So I will point you to some books. Um, There are some really good commentaries that talk about the events that happened and how they transpired. Dan King has one. Brother Bob Walton has one that I've looked at. And most of them do fall hand in hand until you get to the end of verse 36 and verse 37 and then from verse 37 to the rest of the chapter there's two thoughts one thought it continues with antiochus all the way through his reign and ends there and then the second thought is it starts with antiochus and jumps all the way to how it was eventually fulfilled in the roman empire when jerusalem was destroyed in ad 70. i'll let you decide which path you want to look at because good arguments can be made for both views Um, but I'm gonna just throw it out there to invite your curiosity to go look more. All right, they're walking in, so I appreciate it.